Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Good morning, good evening, wherever you may be across the nation or around the world. Once again, you are listening to the VMware Community's Roundtable Podcast. This is podcast number 530. My name is Eric Nelson, and with me today, I have my regular co-host, Matt Longeth. Today is Wednesday, October 7th, 2020. Uh, Matt, how are you doing today? Eric, I'm a little sad. We heard out is as I'm sure that's now, um, as people are picking up, that uh, Eddie Van Halen passed away yesterday. And as a child of the 80s, uh, a great fan, a, a big appreciation for all of Van Halen and whatnot. And further, reading on those little of his life, I didn't realize this, but he's a triple patent holder and a little bit of a hacker himself. Uh, many improvements for amps and guitars and whatnot. So... Just a little more sad news than what's been uh, an otherwise dreary 2020. But how are you, sir? How are things out there? And how is the color of the bay? Well, I'm doing great. Uh, anytime VMworld goes off without a hitch, it's always good news. Uh, so I do like that. And the, it's been beautiful weather in California. It cleared up. The wind is coming off the ocean. So all the fires that are up north still, and there are a couple new fires in Napa that are burning through wineries. Uh, all that smoke is headed uh, east. So Matt, you'll be breathing that in maybe a few more days. But right now the wind is coming off the ocean. So I'm not breathing it it is sunny and beautiful here a little bit chilly it's down into the 50s at night so winter october has kind of just come roaring in so uh, nice cool weather kind of trying to figure out what halloween's going to look like this year you know do we put candy out on the sidewalks for the the 2020 covid safe trick-or-treat land for kids i don't know i don't know what we're going to do but it's nice weather here and um VMworld has wrapped up, so we're happy about uh, the fact that VMworld seemed to go off successful. So, Matt, I'll start with you and say, how was your VMworld? It was great. I think it was better than expected. I know that I was involved with a couple of opening acts uh, with VM Underground. We did a panel on uh, career advancement during the pandemic. Uh, it was an hour-long session. The at the recording of which is out there on the VM Underground YouTube channel. But overall, the event, I think for, for a virtual event, it was better than expected. I, I know that we saw some very high attendance numbers. There was lots of content out there. I love the idea that this that, that was about inclusion this year, that the, the greater view community audience was able to, to get in and to see all of these general sessions and the great content that so much time and effort goes into uh, getting produced. And it's still all obviously out there and accessible for everyone to, to view and to go into those on-demand sessions. So for, for what it was, obviously I'd, I'd want in-person events back as soon as we can, as soon as that, you know, it's a reasonable time so, to do so and that it's, it's in a safe environment. 
but all things considered, I thought it was an excellent, excellent event. All right. Well, that's that's good. I, I would say the same. On the show today, we're going to be talking about two things today. One, VMworld wrap-up. We have Tony Foster, myself, and Matt um, on the show just to talk about uh, our impressions, give you some social media numbers, uh, how successful VMworld online was versus a traditional VMworld. I know we don't talk a lot about that, but I will give you some visibility into number comparisons uh, last year versus this year. So we can, and then we can talk about what was good, what was bad. We can talk about the Discord uh, uh, environment that was up there, the, the V brown bag and brown bag sessions, as well as the keynotes. So we'll talk a little bit about that and get everybody's impressions. And then uh, we do have that fling that's out, uh, the ESX on Raspberry Pi. Uh, the fling is out. It only took us two years to get to the point where we actually have ESX running on Raspberry Pi. So I know that uh, Tony Foster, myself, and Matt have spent a little bit of time with that fling. I have installed ESX on Raspberry Pi in the past. So we'll talk a little bit about ESX on Raspberry Pi and the fling after we talk a little bit about VMworld. Um, so news, uh, let's see. Hmm, before we get to uh, those topics, I uh, can talk a little bit about news. The expert applications for the end of the year will start coming up. So uh, be ready. I believe those open up sometime in late November, early December. So just be on the lookout for that. Uh, the expert apps for uh, 2020 awards uh, will will happen uh, in the end of the year, and we'll go into next year. Usually, those go out so uh, by February, March of next year. So look for that. That's coming up. I know there's going to be a networking event. So we're prepping for a networking event in early November. So we're going to be talking networking, uh, going to be doing a networking event. And so watch out for the networking event. Uh, going to be talking about some cool stuff and uh, the whole network architecture for VMworld, uh, uh, sorry, for VMware. Watch out for that. That's, you'll see that in social coming out. Uh, we'll, we'll be looking for Reg. If you're interested in doing some blog articles, reach out to Corey Romero. Uh, we got some paid social that we can do around some good uh, networking uh, articles, so watch out for that. And I think that's what's we're going to take us through the end of the year. And then traditionally, the end of the year for us is about planning, so no other news. Uh, but big kickoff for the networking event, we're going to be doing that. And we'll see some VMworld wrap-up uh, as the, the days go by. So that's what's happening in the news, other than, of course, uh, Eddie Van Halen passed away. Yeah, how, how could we not do that? Who was the other guy, the, the blonde-haired guy that used to jump around on the screen, that uh, uh, was with Eddie Van Halen's band for a while? Um, forget his name. David Lee Roth. Yeah, David was, Lee Roth. There was headmen there for a while, and then it was Sammy Hagar, and then it went back to David Lee. Uh, and... So it's different it's, iterations. It's of funny. What was a, a great band, but there was always right. a couple of key meter, members, with Eddie being one of them. Yeah, and uh, I, I saw them. I thought I think I saw him on video not too long ago. And this is where you realize when you see these guys that you can't go back because they're all old dudes now. It's, you can't. You you can listen to it, but you can't go back to those MTV days, right? Uh, no way. Like they're. There's just a time and a place. Um, 
Time marches on. Time marches on. That's exactly right. All right. So let's get to the show. So before we get, I should ask Tony Foster, give him a sec, a chance to get off mute here. Uh, Tony Foster, I know you went and did a couple sessions. What was your impression of VMworld this year? So I really enjoyed VMworld this year. It wasn't the same, but that's not necessarily bad. Nice. Yeah, it was it was definitely different. Um, I know I saw you on a couple of the sessions. So the strange thing about this year is VMworld was almost, I want to say, 24 by 7 for two and a half days, right? Where it we did the Europe version from 1 a.m. until 8 a.m., uh, California time, which is their midday, right? Then we did the US sessions, uh, the live sessions. Then we had the keynotes intermixed in there. And then we also had all the recorded sessions, right? And then you had the live streams. And then we had uh, Discord uh, over with uh, Orbital Jigsaw. So it was just a lot of things going on. And I felt like it was hard to keep up with everything, right? Because there was just enough things happening. Then if you threw code in on Thursday and Friday, there was actually, it was a it was a long week for us, right? Be, being up from 1 a.m. till 8 a.m. doing so the BOF sessions, V Brownback had live sessions. Um, so I felt a little bit like I was uh, jet lagged, right? During, during the event, right? And I don't suppose, people in the US or in Europe that went to the event on their own without having to do dual events probably felt that way. But I wondered if you guys, did you guys uh, actually engage with the, with the content through both sessions and did you feel jet lagged and a little bit out of it? I absolutely did. I, I know that there is still a list of, of sessions that were out there that I, there was like, let's call it a top 10 that I wanted to go through and really try to focus on. So the UC keynotes, obviously, ads keynotes and whatnot. But as I read through some of these social posts and, and what's out there on Twitter or as blogs get posted and reference sessions that are available for on-demand, that list keeps increasing. So rather than just the event itself, that content or may or may, uh, may have not got to, now it just seems like there's more things that I keep going back to that I want to reference. And I see that more so this year than I have in years previous. Obviously, if you were an attendee, you could have access to some of the recorded sessions in prior years. But it just seems like for whatever reason, this year in particular, there's more content that I want to go back to and watch and review. Yeah, there were 600 sessions total uh, recorded, right? So I think that's up from a typical number of like 450. And I think that's because there was no restriction for space and room and that kind of stuff and travel budgets to be able to run a session. And so they were able to say yes to a larger number of sessions this year, or at least that was my impression. So uh, definitely 650 sessions is a lot of sessions to do. Um, I really like the keynotes. I love the theater, the virtual environment. If you haven't seen the keynotes yet, I would highly recommend going back and uh, finding the recording. Uh, they're on VMworld. You can go watch them for free. Um, the keynote, I thought, from Pat was good. I love the staged environment. I love the way the, the speakers popped up next to him in a frame. I felt, I felt it was almost better than a real keynote, right? 
Uh, I, I don't know. I'll have to disagree a, a, a tad bit there. It was now, I will say that the production value was incredible. I mean, for the virtual backgrounds, the, the picture in pictures they did, the graphics and whatnot, it all popped. It was very, very, very well done. But it just didn't have that presence, so to say, of being there in the audience with you know, 10,000 other people in a, in a large venue and having Pat walk up on stage to a round of applause and hearing that, you know, the delivery, the vision. Um, I think that that's, in no matter what form, uh, other than in person, it would be hard to deliver that experience. I, I think you're right about that. And I wonder about the content. The, the keynote was definitely shorter. I think the whole keynote was... 55 minutes or some number like that it was less than an sure, hour the, the, not the, tr the transitions weren't there the, the you know the, the from one person to walk on stage the mic handoff and whatnot that yeah, felt much more consolidated yeah and maybe that's what i liked about it i liked the i think why i liked it was because i'm so starved for any kind of you know normalcy of feeling of going somewhere and seeing an event that if me and my wife go for coffee and just get a remote a takeout cup of coffee we feel like we went on a a, a cruise vacation we're so desperate to get out of the office get out of our house that anything feels better and i felt like the keynote i was teleported to like a vm world in my head and i think i got some escape from being able to watch that i felt like i was almost at a vm world right even though i guess i wasn't so maybe that's why i liked it better right or i i had a, a more positive interaction reaction to it was because i'm just so sequestered in my house that it felt like i i actually was out of my house for that time i was watching it so and pat's just a cool guy right i mean i, I like that i think that uh, pat is charismatic what he had to say uh, I thought that was good as well so moving on from keynote um, favorite announcements um, my favorite announcement I think was project Monterey right where you're embedding ESXi on a network controller uh, that came out of nowhere for me I wasn't you know I, I pretty much get to hear about a lot of the tech that we're doing ahead of time because we're obviously working at VMworld um, but when they announced that I, I had to get my head around what they were even talking about because I had not heard about that yet and then when I did hear about it, uh, it's it was uh, hard for me to get a, understand exactly how that's going to transition our industry if you start putting ESX on the network controller, so that then the rest the rest of the hardware can be allocated to running Kubernetes or other. I don't know. So, Matt, what was your thoughts? Well, it, I, I would say Monterey is the the big takeaway. Mo Monterey is going to be. The, the next platform, it's going to, to be the next iteration of BCF. Uh, it's going to be incredibly important to the, the future of what will be the next iteration of vSphere. Uh, but it's also to, to look back to it, and I know we're going to speak about it later in the show, is that natural iteration of ESXi on ARM. So that, that fling that, that, that's out there and finally got published of, okay, why was this built? What, what What's the actual... Uh, real-world application of this uh, porting of, of the base vSphere code over to the ARM platform. And now we can see why in all of the use cases that are going to be enabled by this massive rewrite. Yeah, I, I guess um, what I was trying to get in my head around was 
if I put ESX on the network controller, what do I use the CPUs for? Like what, how does that interact if I'm running VMs on my network controller? Like, or do I have ESX running on the hardware too, but put it on the, on, on my x86 server or CPUs? Like what's the connection there? Like why, why do I offload ESX over on the network controllers? And I think they mentioned it, but I don't remember what the answer was, right? But I was trying to get my head around, okay, that's kind of neat parlor trick, but wh why, why, why do I so do that? My understanding, and Tony can jump in here, is that we're trying to deconstruct the infrastructure. And the best way that I can make an analogy here is because of my uh, EUC background. So in a traditional EUC setup, if we're trying to add virtual graphics processors, right, there has to be a traditional correlation of the host as we know it now has to contain that NVIDIA or other providers graphics cards and that particular VM has to live within that host. So in other words, if you want a, v a VM or a virtual desktop that has vGPU capabilities, that V that host or excuse me, that desktop has to run on that particular host that has the card. Right. With this technology, we are now deconstructing that. And, and this is not just obviously limited to vGPUs. This could be storage arrays. This could be security feature sets. This could even be something, a, a service that would be offered from a, a cloud service provider where you don't have to necessarily have what would be a traditional infrastructure piece that would need to be as we previously know it, something within the host. So in the example that I gave, let's say that you have a cluster of eight existing ESXi hosts, but only two of them now have uh, vGPU cards. Well, now that whole entire um, cluster can share the resources of just those two vGPUs. And again, that applies to, to storage, networking, security, and whatnot, because we're deconstructing the, the infrastructure layer. Hmm. Right. And when you're providing you pull, that right. across multiple resources within the cluster. Right. I get it. I think I get it. Right. So it takes me a little time to get my head around that, but I, I essentially um I guess that's I, my understanding. What I don't know is the Tony, interconnect. Would you like to jump in there? Thoughts, comments? Am I totally wrong on, on the yeah. hot take? I, I think you're spot on with uh, your analogy there. Um, that's exactly what it is. Um, and, and I think this also really sets the stage to expand beyond traditional items for virtualization. Um, so one of the up and coming areas, and people may have noticed that I've been working on it, uh, is artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning. Um, being able to deconstruct or abstract the architecture uh, really, really allows for workloads in the AIML DL space to start coming into play in the virtual environments. So this is a huge addition to that and really opens up the space even more. I actually have 
a ton of links to all the material around Project Monterey that was announced on my website. So it has all the blogs, all the sessions, um, and anything else that I've been able to get my hands on that's publicly available around Monterey uh, over at wondernerd.net. Right. Yeah, to your point of AI and, and machine learning, imagine, and I'll just to try to make a corollary here with the EEC example that I used, imagine if you were a, a firm with you know, a couple hundred desktop users that all had a, a large um, NVIDIA grid setup, but only had the traditional you know, eight to five, seven to six type work environment. And most of the time, you know, during a traditional 24 hour period, two-thirds of, of that, the VGPUs are just sitting there idle. If you're deconstructing those resources now, and security aside, you could offer up those VGPU cycles as almost a service. You could use that service internally, or you could see where, maybe this is a little bit of an extreme example, but where you could offer that as, as your own SaaS offering where someone could consume those VGPU cycles for their own AI or machine learning workloads. So by deconstructing this from, from what would be a you know, traditional infrastructure, it, it's, it's, I think, believe one of the, the quotes within Kit's article that was out there on, on the VMware blog was composable infrastructure. So it doesn't necessarily need to be within the host anymore. And that could be within other hosts within your own cluster, or again, even a service that's offered from a cloud service provider or one of the big three, an AWS, an Azure, a GCP. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So I thought uh, my observation, not to, not to, I don't want to spend too much time on Monterey, so I'll, I'll up-level us a little bit. Uh, I think a lot of things to learn. Uh, you can go to wondernerd.net and see all the articles that uh, Tony has uh, referenced, or just go go to uh, blogs.vmware.com. We have a lot of blog, blog articles showing up on it. Um, next observation for VMworld, um, AWS, or the lack of AWS. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't see a lot of AWS conversations and chatter so I don't know if uh, if we're just we're just settled on how VMC and AWS runs but uh, I thought a little bit of uh, less emphasis on AWS and more emphasis on kubernetes so I saw kubernetes everywhere um, there were a lot of kubernetes sessions um, we had a lot of kubernetes on code sessions that were very popular um, so I, I thought that Kubernetes, obviously, for vSphere 7 was popular, people learning that. A lot less, from my vantage point, on uh, AWS mentions. I don't know, Matt, if you experienced the same thing. I, I did, and this is a personal take and, and represents no company vision or whatnot, but I think that there is some consternation out there among the cloud service providers. Um, and I, I mean, not outside of the big three. Um, where VMC on AWS or uh, any of the, let's call it the, the major three players, is in some way competing against their own business. So, and I think that might have channeled back up through the partners channels and whatnot, so that there's a little bit of a, um, of a battle going on. And it's a good one, that, of, of showing where there's additional value add above and beyond just storage 
memory and compute that's offered from these big three providers, the additional value that's brought for as far as best practices and being able to, you know, truly migrate those workloads um, in a engagement fashion, uh, you know, through consulting and best practices and whatnot that a, let's call it a mid-tier service provider could offer. Um, and I, I think VMware is hearing that on some level, right? The partners is a large part of the VMware ecosystem. And a lot of partners have invested a lot of uh, money into their own data centers. So there might be a little bit of feedback as far as, you know, the, the large push that was VMC on AWS. Again, yeah. just a personal opinion, yeah. but um, maybe that's why. It, it could yeah. be something else totally different. Maybe Kubernetes and Monterey just happened to have a bigger uh, a feedback and was more of the limelight and deserved more of the show. Yeah, I think that the, the vGPU business is ramping up. So every year we have something new and shiny, and the vGPU business is new and shiny, AI using uh, those compute resources uh, and virtualizing that seems to be the new shiny thing that a lot of companies want to get into. And so that could be what it is also, is just that there's new shiny. There could be a, a partner uh, pushback or the fact that we now are every cloud provider, right? So that we don't really have to talk about one versus another. Right, so, and again, I, I was a little bit short there. So above and beyond just uh, AWS, Azure, and GCP, we've also seen IBM Cloud as well as um, uh, Oracle come on board this year. So there's, there's a little bit, I'm sure, even amongst the major players, that if we would feature one versus the other, that there could be some, you know, a, a little bit of, of turmoil amongst the three. So we're, we're, we've seen progress. Uh, the VMC on AWS platform uh, does not stand alone like it did in years previous. Uh, VMware is now playing in, in all major clouds. And maybe that's why there's a little bit of a yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, I think because we are playing in all major clouds now, and it is kind of just known that we do this, that it's more of a yawn thing of, yeah, okay, if you're interested in a hybrid cloud environment and you want cloud across these different vendors, we have that. And we have an infrastructure that'll work across. We have networking that'll work across. And yeah, so a lot of that. Then I think that uh, uh, I would. it's interesting to see our positioning on Kubernetes and the fact that the Kubernetes workloads are just, you know, Kubernetes workloads, not VM workloads workloads that don't necessarily run in a VM, they weren't running a container, and then it, we manage all the containers. And that seemed to be just a very solid message that everybody just kind of accepted, right? And if you look at the number of places where they went, yep, we just we just treat these containers. So it's like we created VMs, they plug into vCenter, you see the container view, and you just manage these uh, compute uh, resources just like you would VMs, right? But that was actually interesting, listening to some of the talks there that um, how it's just become normal to support um, Kubernetes apps, right? Just as apps like they were VMs, but instead they're container workloads. So I thought that was, uh, was, was interesting to see us just kind of gravitate into that messaging and that level of delivery of service. So also, also interesting. Yeah, it's obviously we had even saw that in Pat's keynote where we had a, a major Fortune 500 
um, show the, the, how quick they could de um, deploy Kubernetes workloads. Uh, it's not so much as now um, we can do this, but we are doing this, if that makes any sense. It's built yeah. into the platform, it's built into BCF, it's built into vSphere. Uh, this is now something that is just not a one-off. It's enterprise grade, it's ready to grow. And all of the other tool sets within the VMware portfolio are starting to come around and right. being able to manage, manage these workloads yep. and, and look at a different workload above and beyond or traditional, you know, um, let's call it SQL VM that's out there. That there, there is now there's these containerized workloads, they, they have their own requirements. And in some ways that, that we needed to rebuild the, the, the tool sets to help manage those. And we've done that, that's coming along. It's, it's all, all of all the pieces of the puzzle that we saw so long ago with uh, Project Tan or excuse me, Project uh, Pacific, that then right. morphed into Tanzu, that is now a you know obviously a, a deliverable skew, has that visions occurred. Yeah, it just occurred, and to your point, I think you know we have hundreds of um, providers. Our customers doing this right like it's it's not only we announced it and thought it was cool and it was in these for seven but now we have enterprise grade customers that are just doing this as part of their business and it has accelerated their adoption of you know uh, modern apps throughout their enterprise and so that's that was interesting it just seemed like yeah everyone w had a common message uh, all the tools uh were were lining up and and then customers were saying yeah this is this is working great so almost the easiest adoption of a new tech i've ever seen right like so that so that was kind of kind of interesting to see all the people talking about things um especially at the vmware code conference that we ran for two days after that um we had Kit Colbert come and talk about that narrative and how that how that's going to work and automating automating traditional apps versus uh, and then other things that we're purchasing uh, and then Pat came uh, on day two keynote and also talked about code and all of the things that they look at and the reason Pat came was that he he has a busy schedule right and he came to the vmware code connect conference which ran thursday and friday and he came and just gave a narrative of you know why you know code is important why automation is important and what strategic direction we're going and what acquisitions we're making in order to move that forward so uh, I thought that was interesting, and that comes back to you know Kubernetes versus non-Kubernetes workload workload management. Uh, any app anywhere, right? Uh, up that stack, right, from hardware to hypervisor to uh, managing large-scale VMs to now Kubernetes to then higher-level you know app abstraction. So I thought that was uh, also interesting from uh, the company perspective. Just easily adopting Kubernetes right into vSphere, have a nice day, uh, let's move on. Here's Project Monterey, here's other things that we're doing, uh, AI, machine learning, um, all of that strategy. So I um, thought very, very good, almost like hardware seemed to be king again, right? If you look at the vGPUs and vGPU utilization, um, it, it, it almost felt like VMware was in the thick of it again, where 
um, two years ago, I felt like when you listen to VMworld, uh, we were trying to play catch up to Amazon and the cloud providers, right? And I feel like we caught up and then we took leadership role. We were playing catch up on Kubernetes. We caught up, we took leadership role and we made data center hardware and hardware and um, utilization of hardware and networking you know, king again. So I, I walked away going like, wow, VMware is, is leading again. They, they, for a year or two, I felt like we were trying to play catch up in these places. I'd absolutely agree. I mean, this, this Monterey is, I think in some ways, even more of a, of a game changer than Pacific. Obviously, um, we saw a need out there for these Kubernetes and container type workloads and, and to integrate that into the product set. That, but this with Monterey is, is a bigger game changer in my opinion. This is more of a fundamental architecture and not that that uh, Pacific wasn't with, with where we ended up with, with Tanzu and what was included in the code base, but this is taking it further back. This is now saying we can obstruct multiple, or, or, or excuse me, not obstruct, abstract, multiple hardware elements and make them uh, available to VMs and containers across the cluster, whether that resource lies within that particular data center or not. And that's incredible. Yeah, yeah, I thought so. Yeah, so uh, really amazed by that. So um, shifting gears a little bit, before we get into, um, before we get into the fling with uh, ARM and uh, ESX on Raspberry Pi and ARM, uh, I, th I promised I would uh, give you a comparison of metrics on VMworld. So if you've been listening so far, um, we did look at you know how much social activity we had for VMworld this year versus how much social activity we had VMworld last year. And the numbers uh, look at for last year, typical VMworld, uh, and this is just for the week long, and we chose the US event because the US event is bigger than the Europe event. So we looked at just the week long US event versus the week long event we did here, right? And the numbers for the week uh, in, in a traditional VM world, we'll have over a million messages, 1.3 million messages that go out during that week-long event. Um, and, you know, between all of this pre-stuff and that and right up to code ending on, on Friday, um, a traditional event would be 1.3 million. Uh, this year for VM world, we had a half a million. So we were 50% or more than 50% down year over year on all the activity tweets and engagement uh, in the social channels we'd have year over year, which is uh, just interesting to understand uh, that you know, as much as we were all engaged, um, I have a feeling when you were doing uh, online activity, you weren't bored sitting in a seat in a conference room and then tweeting out a photo of, of the session you were watching, right? Because we know that if you're walking around a center and you're seeing people doing things, you're much more likely to take your mobile out, snap a picture and tweet about it or tweet about what you're learning. When you're online and you're watching this stuff, you're kind of consumed by the online experience. So we saw the amount of 
material go uh, drop by 50% or more, a uh, little more than 50% uh, from a uh, outbound social activity perspective. Um, from a how many people actually watch the keynote perspective, um, for the first day keynote, I think we had uh, 30,000 people watching it live, right, during the stream. Uh, that is in comparison to an, a normal event where everybody comes to the event, you have maybe 15,000 people watching the event and another um, maybe 10 or 12,000 watching a live stream. So uh, keynote wise, it was very similar, right? Where you have a total of 30,000 people watching it, 15,000 at the event watching it in real in, in person and another 10,000 people watching it online where if we looked at the live stream uh, video views of that we were at about 30,000 now the difference is I think we got a longer tail uh, because of the live event uh, or a streaming event we'll get additional 10 or 20,000 people watching that uh, over the course of the next three or four weeks because people get around to going to the online event and looking at things. So all in all, I think live stream wise, reach wise, I think we probably exceeded, but then social activity engagement uh, cut by half. But that makes logical sense because this is, this is what's going on. So to my point, a lot of value in going to a physical event, right? Like the, you get about half of the experience that you would have doing an online versus if everybody comes to a physical event. So that was uh, what I took away from the numbers. Eric, were there any other numbers that you could share that really stuck out to you or any other statistics that just you looked at and said, wow, yeah. that's not what I expected? Yeah, I, I there was one big one that I thought that I haven't mentioned yet, which is we had a total of 153,000 people register for the live stream. So, you know, 153,000, which we were all giving ourselves from a marketing perspective and an event perspective, we were giving ourselves a high five because we were excited because we had 150,000 people to sign up for the, the live stream kickoff, the keynotes. Um, what we got uh, was, again, 18 to 20,000, 20,000, which is only about 16% or some number like that, uh, depending on how many you said signed up. Uh, you know response so the fall off from registration to coming and sitting and watching the event mm -hmm. was was actually surprising and we had the same kind of thing at vmware code the code event we had live sessions they were all live all day thursday all day friday and the average sign up for the sessions were six to seven hundred people signed up to watch every single VMware code session that we had. And the keynotes had over a thousand people signed up to come watch the keynote, either Kit Colbert or um, Pat Gelsinger. When we looked at the real numbers, the real numbers were Kit had 175 people. So again, 17% decided to show up from those that regged uh, same thing with uh, Pat. Pat, I think, had 800 people on Friday, and he had about 110 people uh, watching watching his his live keynote. Um, so I was actually really surprised at the drop off, right? That, uh, and I think the takeaway is that if you registration reg people, I think you have to engage with them 
up during up until the show in some other online fashion instead of just registering them once and then expecting them to remember and be excited about coming to VMworld. So because what we saw was less than 20% of the people that actually registered actually ever came to the event. So that was a takeaway. Well, that's for, for live events, right? They're, they're, we're not including what the potential tail there could be. That's right. That's right. I mean, you will get a tail. And as I say, the tail will probably be greater because this was an online event and you did reg and you'll get around to seeing it and you know it's recorded, so you'll go. But we'll watch those numbers because that's not always true either, right? Like people don't necessarily come back to these things. You get like a one or three week, one to three week, you know, oh, people came back and watched stuff, but then it's out of sight, out of mind, and they're moved on to the next virtual environment, the virtual event they signed up for. So I think there's a lot of real-time content out there now, and you're competing against, you know, more streaming content that you've ever had because of COVID. Absolutely. Yeah. So out of curiosity, right. Eric, were there yeah. any numbers on uh, viewers in Orbital Jigsaw? Because I know a lot of people watched the keynotes in Orbital Jigsaw. I have not gotten formal numbers back. I did I did have Corey go to those sessions. So he was over there chatting with people on Orbital Discord Jigsaw uh, in in the on Discord. Uh, I haven't got the formal numbers. I know they were at uh, 600 uh, regs the last time I checked. Um, and I, I think they probably landed somewhere in the seven to 800 range. Um, don't know how many, I know they had seven streams. Corey reported back that the streams were fun, uh, that the streams were going and you could jump into a stream, watch the, the stream of sessions and then chat with people and the chat was very lively. So it worked out well. So congrats to Orbital Jigsaw for running that, just like V uh, Brown Bag and uh, VMware Underground. We love community when the community gets together and do, does things. I think the numbers would probably be in the 600 to 800 range. No, that's, but I don't have the official numbers from uh, Nick yet. Yeah, it was a it was a fun environment, and uh, I think it's probably something that you know will continue to be something that if you can't go to VMworld, uh, you can can go over and hang on, hang hang with them online in in Discord. Right? It'll be interesting to see next year whether uh, VMworld does something similar. Right? Like whether they take the online experience to the next level, or whether they just encourage everybody to go to the physical event like they have in years past. It'll be interesting to see. But I don't think their numbers would impact the overall numbers. It wasn't like we got, originally we were hoping for two or 3,000 people over there. Um, I don't think, that, I think it was primarily a place for the V community guys and girls, women to, to actually go hang out and connect with one another. So. Good question. All right, with that, we have 15 more minutes, so I want to get to the fling. So uh, the fling, I know, to, to kick that off, two years ago, I was at VMworld 
uh, and AWS reInvent, and I demoed ESXi boot running on an, a Raspberry Pi 3B+, plus, which only has a gig of memory. And it was kind of fun. You could boot it up, and everybody was excited about that. And, they, and at that time, they said, okay, a yeah, couple months, we'll get this out. Uh, it got squashed for about a year. They didn't do anything. They worked, but they didn't work. They weren't sure what they were going to do. Then there was rumors that they were going to get it out. Um, Nothing came out that, I think the next year, nothing really came out. They talked about it. Uh, they were saying they were going to do it. And now it was 2020, and they were going to be close. We had them on the podcast. We talked about it. And uh, now it is now finally October, and it is it is out. So uh, the fling is out. You can get uh, ESX on Raspberry Pi. I think it wants to run on uh, Raspberry Pi 4 with, Eight gig of memory, I think, is the max you can get, or maybe four gig. I don't know what the what the recommendation. I think it's eight. Is. I believe that that's right. Yeah, yeah. I think the eight gig is the one they're 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 talking no, about. No, I, I, well, okay, here if you look at it, flings.vmware.com, and you search for ESXi ARM edition. Within the requirements, they list the the Pi 4B with four or eight gig of memory, but oh, okay. in the notes, eight gig is highly recommended. And a USB 3.0 yeah. device for uh, ESXi and BMFS. So Tony, uh, I heard that you've gone off and looked at it. Have you uh, actually went and got it and tried to install it yet? So I've got it. I'm in the process of installing it, but I'm actually installing it on a uh, different ARM platform. I'm installing it on a uh, NVIDIA Jetson Nano. So I I'm going off the reservation a little. So I'll be honest there. Um, the uh, Pi is on the list, but this one's first. Got it. Nice. Uh, I know I have a Raspberry Pi 4, so I'm going to go get it. I did install it. It'll be interesting to see whether it supports true VMs and how many VMs you can actually run uh, and what OSs you can put in those VMs, right? Like uh, normally on a Raspberry Pi, you'd run Raspberry and Raspberry, Raspberry and OS, which I think they've renamed Raspberry OS now. Um, and so I assume that you can run a Raspberry OS there. It'll be interesting to see if they, if the VMs there support any other uh, OSs. Because uh, that's one of the things. And then the second thing is I don't remember if they, for the first version, they have vMotion turned off. There was really no way to do anything with your VMs other than run multiple OSs. Uh, but if you had multi-nodes, there was no vCenter, vMotion kind of scenario there because of that. And I, ha I don't know if they can even plug an ESXi running uh, on a Raspberry Pi into vCenter, right? Like whether it, it, it can be managed by vCenter. So a couple of those questions I still have out. It'll be interesting to go take a look at that. So a lot of those are actually uh, managed by, by the uh, guy. Tony, you're so up. If you look, awesome. If you uh, look at the uh, readme file for installing this, um, it actually talks about a lot of those things. So yes, it is now possible to add your Raspberry Pi into your vCenter if you want to. Um, nice. And then I believe there's a vib for vMotion. Um, 
in the uh, actual download list. So you can get a vib and that'll actually enable vMotion on this. It's not in there natively, but it is available um, after the fact. Nice. All right. So, so that's where my that. question comes from. How, how in one of the immediate things that I think of with this is unless it's a native ARM workload, how would we take, or is it even possible? And Eric, you had, you had spoke to this before. And I don't know the answer to this. I'm just I'm throwing it out there to be explained, perhaps, of how do you take a VM that's running on an x86 instruction set and vMotion it over to something that's running on <laughs> an ARM processor? You don't do that. <laughs> that's that's not oh, possible. Yeah, right. You don't do that. And I, I think that's where the generally accepted rules of building your architecture. If you have right. multiple pies in your environment, you move from uh, one pie to the next pie to the next pie, but you don't move uh, from pie to an x86. That's right, that's right. But uh, but you can vMotion from, from ARM A to ARM B, uh, that'll work. And even vMotion has some x86 requirements that you have to have certain uh, architectures to move from one x86 to another x86. So even vMotion in the x86 land does have architecture requirements. And then ARM, uh, you can vMotion your payload and you wanna have your payload now, on ARM, there are all kinds of things that are compiled on ARM, like Windows is compiled on ARM now, so you can get a Windows version for ARM. Uh, and then you can get Apache and, you know, Nginx, and, you know, you can start architecting your microservices using lots of little nodes, uh, which is kind of cool. Um, I don't. I think they're on vSphere 7. I think the fling was based on vSphere 7, which then begs the question of whether they, you can run kubelets or servlets or spherelets uh, across that so that you could build out a true, you know, large-scale, small node environment that would allow you to run small Kubernetes payloads, kind of what we were doing with our Raspberry Pi um, uh, sensors. Sensor apps and uh, run on uh, running Kubernetes on Raspberry Pi, and then running those apps across and building your microservices and deploying them to small nodes for the duration that they run, and then they disappear and they they send their data back up to a data repository. So yeah, that's that's how that's going to architect out. Uh, I have not read whether it runs Kubernetes. I, I assume it should because Kubernetes does run on ARM. Now you start getting into memory requirements and you know, how are you doing that? And why would you virtualize um, an arm anyway, right? So, but this is more of an experiment and which is fun to do, um, but it does beg the question of, you know, if you're virtualizing an, an eight gig uh, device, do you get a lot out of that? What's the average size of a payload these days? Um, but when you start talking about Kubernetes and then running your little small payloads on Kubernetes, like what Google does for their search stuff, that starts to make sense. So I think there's architectural things. I think, Matt, your original comment, which is this is kind of neat to virtualize and then abstract um, and then you'll have ARM processors that use kind of like the Monterey architecture, um, which I still don't understand how that works, but I think there are there is room for that. And then on edge devices, there's room for that. Um, and there's reasons to abstract out those connections. Um, 
So I think that's where that'll go, but not running your traditional playloads in a, in a VM kind of environment, like what we would have done with x86 and VMs with operating systems. I think it'll be smaller, lighter payloads that are managed and the virtualization layer gives you management control of that uh, would be my guess. But one of these days we're well, gonna have We've already to... seen some, some interesting edge workload scenarios where we would have a pie or let's call it an industrialized pie equivalent be a witness for a two-node vSAN environment. So out there at the edge where, you, where you'd have a, a two-node vSAN and you need that witness appliance that traditionally would be might be that you know, data center um, or, or traffic backhauled, witness traffic backhauled to the data center, where this could be its own autonomous, you know, quasi three-node, if you will, uh, vSAN cluster, where it wouldn't be that a the need for that third host. You could use this as now as a, as a low cost alternative that would be fully effective. Right. Yep. Yep. Makes sense. Right. And if nothing else, it's just fun to do. Right. And uh, again, Raspberry Pis don't have fans. So if you want a home lab running ESXi and being able to do this stuff, now you can get a little 60 or $70 unit sits on your desk, only uses USB power. And, uh, you know, you can, you can, you can have any little small ESX host there and running vSphere seven, uh, gives you a lot of things that you can do with that. Right. So if you want to build management apps, uh, PowerShell stuff from your windows to controlling ESXi, you can, you know, you can do that for only under a hundred dollars and no fan, no heavy, no break your bank. Your electric bill goes up $25 a month because you're running an x86 server in the corner that you're really not using. This is something you can have. You're just messing with it and uh, it doesn't cost you anything to have it there. So that's what I personally like about it is that uh, it's a home lab for under hundred bucks. Got lots of information out there this week with this release uh, coming out. This particular fling again, flings.vmware.com, and search for the ESX ARM. Excuse me, ESXi ARM edition. Uh, the Twitter handle ESXi underscore ARM ARM uh, has been a, a great uh, just addition here to the community. That the I think this Twitter handle was out there for a while. Uh, oh, actually, no, it's not. Just new within September 2020, but blogging quite a lot, uh, putting up uh, and retweeting. Uh, great story there of from that particular Twitter account of of the the history of the project. William Lamb over on virtuallyghetto.com has, has uh, put out some some great information with this as well as his Twitter account. L-A-M-W, at L-A-M-W. So just a, a lot of information, a lot of, of blogs and, and podcasts and whatnot uh, around Project Monterey and this, this specific release. And I'm sure this is just the, the tip of, of what will be um, some great use cases and some, some interesting developments with all things ARM. Yep, that's it. All right, well, we're nearly the top of the hour, so we have, uh, I think, four minutes left, so maybe we'll just transition to uh, the V Barbecue report. Um, so Tony Foster's with us. I know that for V Barbecue, um, this one we're not recording, so we're not going to put this up on the YouTube channel um, because uh, Julia Klaus is uh, out, out of the office. Many of us are out of the office this week after VMworld, that's traditional, take a break and uh, get, get some sleep. But I will say, 
way that I did some really nice uh, glazed pork, right? You know, got a fatty pork, seasoned it up and uh, put it on the barbecue and uh, nothing better than uh, that crispy fat layer that gets crunchy uh, was a pretty good barbecue. And, uh, you know, it's always good to do those things and they last a good long time. And then we did do some baked beans. You can uh, get some uh, molasses and uh, brown sugar and uh, a little bit of... Uh, uh, apple cider vinegar, uh, mix that up and put some baked beans, soak your beans, put them in the oven and bake them down with some bacon in there and a little pork bits from the pork barbecue. And you got nice baked beans, uh, nice pork barbecue. And that, that was pretty good. Uh, get a little bit of hearty meal here as the weather gets colder, which is nice. Tony Foster, don't know if you've been doing any uh, barbecuing, but uh, uh, I, I definitely yeah, enjoy I some what do you got for us? Anything interesting? Salmon fillets. I, I, I did salmon fillets this weekend. Um, they were absolutely wonderful. Uh, nice and trimmed. Um, had a nice salad with them. Couldn't beat it. Salmon fillets on the barbecue. Uh, always good. Uh, we actually did some swordfish not too long ago. Didn't uh, barbecue it, but, you know, we all do salmon all the time. But uh, get some nice swordfish fillets as well. Those are also pretty good for you and uh, really nice fish. So yeah, nice. All right. Well, with that, mm -hmm. Matt, thanks for being here as always. Um, we will be back here again next week. Um, Kate Colberts is going to come back with us and talk uh, about the uh, career guide for IT administrators. So we have a career guide for IT administrators we're going to be talking about. We're also going to be talking about some of the major launches of products that, that were released for uh, at VMworld. So uh, we're looking to draw out some product conversations for the last bit of the year. So there you go. Matt, thanks a lot for being here as always. Tony Foster as well. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate it. And we'll see you next week. See you next week, guys. Have a great rest of your week and uh, do some barbecue this weekend and enjoy life. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.